Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. You'd like to be self-sufficient, but the space you have available is tighter than your budget. If this sounds familiar, the Homegrown City Life Series was created just for you. Our authors bring country living to the city with big ideas for small spaces. Topics include cheesemaking, fermenting, gardening, composting, and more. Everything you need to create your own homegrown city life. Buy three or more books in the series and receive a 35% discount. Find out more at newsociety.com. Hey there, and welcome to another special episode of the Abundant Edge podcast, everyone. I hope you're doing well. This week, we'll be wrapping up this series on modern homesteading by reviewing some of the most important information from the last seven interviews. In those episodes, we covered a ton of exciting topics from some of the best authorities in their field, from animal husbandry, becoming self-sufficient by living off your land, myth-busting, small enterprise planning, making money on your homestead, and so much more. I'll also be giving some advice and observations from my own experience living and working on homesteading projects and starting my own homesteads all over the world in the last 15 years. What's more is that I've just published a new ebook all about homesteading and resilient living titled Homesteading for Every Home that you can now download on the website for free and you can use it to plan your own homestead and start building a profitable land-based business right away. Both in this episode and in the ebook, I'll be talking about what modern homesteading actually is, how it looks in different configurations, how you can start taking your first step towards a homesteading lifestyle, even when you're living in a tiny apartment in the city, and what it means to work towards self-sufficiency, and advice from my experience homesteading in foreign countries and what the advantages and disadvantages are. Now, let's get real for a minute here first. As COVID-19 pandemic continues to develop, people all over the world are waking up simultaneously to the fragility of our global economy and our so-called safety nets. I've seen a dramatic increase in articles, videos, blogs, and online education about things like growing your own food, providing your own needs at home, starting a small business for independent income, natural medicines, and a lot more in just the last few weeks. Many of us are also just now realizing that our work is considered non-essential, and therefore our jobs and our livelihoods are now at risk. While this may be just a temporary shutdown and there's still a chance that things will resume much the way that they were before the social distancing measures, it's also quite likely that there will be some major changes and adjustments ahead. We have all been alerted to how much our world and our lives are outside of our control and being influenced by factors that are inherently unstable. Over the span of our lives, so many of us have been seduced into a promise of luxury, convenience, and an abundance of options by things like low prices and ease of access to products and services that have separated us from our own self-reliance. These things, while not inherently bad, are the mechanisms by which we let go of our autonomy and interconnectedness between the people around us and in our communities. The more we outsource our needs, wants, and aspirations to an economy that profits off our desire not to lift a finger or to save time, we begin to lose the skills and knowledge that would help us reclaim our self-reliance. We now find ourselves at a point in which many of us are hyper-competent at very specific skill sets and narrow focuses or disciplines for the sake of productivity or efficiency, but we've lost the simple skills that previous generations relied upon for their daily needs and well-being. This is even more pronounced in my generation and people younger than me because so many of us grew up with technologies that we take for granted and that have redefined how we do everything from how we cook to how we communicate. It can be so easy to forget that life went on just fine without all the tools and gadgets that we've outsourced so much of our thinking and our entertainment to. That's why in this episode we'll explore some of the most actionable information about homesteading and self-sufficient living that I gathered from the last interviews in this series, as well as adding some of my own learning and experience from designing and working on various homestead projects around the world. While there are tons of voices online right now talking about homesteading and self-reliance planning that range from keeping hobby chickens in an urban backyard, all the way to prepping for the apocalypse in a hidden bunker, 
This episode was made to give you an idea of the wide range of options out there all in one place, with links to explore the ones that best suit your personal goals and your context. The ideas and advice here come from real people who are living the solutions they endorse. What's more, all of the options presented here are designed to work towards environmental restoration and health at the same time. So whether you're still going about your daily life as normal or you're sheltering in place in a cramped apartment with no income, all of us can use this time to take stock of our lives and support systems to assess what we can be doing to build resilience in the connections that support us, our loved ones, and of course our communities. The alternative right now is to miss out on this unprecedented opportunity for positive change and leave ourselves vulnerable to further disruption and insecurity when the next emergency inevitably arrives. Now is the time to take steps towards creating an abundant, regenerative, and secure future for yourself and your community. While everyone's context is different and many of the solutions presented here will not be correct for your personal goals, many of them will. And it's up to you to decide your future in these uncertain times. The actions that you take today will determine how resilient you and your community will be as we collectively transition out of this pandemic. So with all of that said, let's start from the beginning. So homesteading is a term that originates from the homesteading acts in the United States. And these were no small events. They had a huge impact on the Western territories of the USA and of the native people who lived there. In all, more than 160 million acres of public land and nearly 10% of the total area of the United States was given away for free to 1.6 million homesteaders. Now, the first act was declared in 1962 and allowed an adult to claim a parcel of land of 160 acres if they were willing to settle and farm that land. The revolutionary part of this act was that it applied to any citizen over 21 years of age, and it also included women and migrants who had applied for citizenship. Later, after the passage of the 14th Amendment, which came in 1968 after the Civil War, it also included freed slaves. Now, there were many extensions and complementary acts that followed, including one that I think is pretty interesting. The Enlarged Homestead Act of 1909 increased the available land for a homestead claimant to 320 acres in areas considered marginal land. Now, this was specifically for the Great Plains region where rainfall is low and the large expanse of flatlands are really hard to irrigate. This directly led to a massive influx of farmers to the area who had little to no knowledge of the ecology of the native savanna there. And in a short time, due to destructive tillage, they created the conditions that led to the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. So let's talk about modern homesteading, which is obviously pretty different. Modern homesteading looks really different from what it looked like between the 1860s to the 1930s, in that most people tend to be on much less land, and it's a term that can apply to a wide configuration of lifestyles from dense urban settings to remote wilderness living. The main commonality I've found in homestead households is that they're trying to achieve some level of self-sufficiency. Obviously, the amount of autonomy that someone can achieve is limited by a number of factors, and at the end of the day, almost no one will be fully self-sufficient. Most people I've found, as well as the homesteading and ecological farming projects that I've worked with in the past, tend to focus mostly on producing their own food and earning enough money to live comfortably and continue to invest in improvements on their property. Yeah, so our number one goal in this transition is to have all our, our <clears throat> most of the resources for our family under control. So food, and that goes from you know chickens, pigs, sheep, cattle, uh, to some fish and all the plant, you know, both garden, both perennial food forest, and and also standard annual production. Now, this can look a lot different for people who live in urban settings, though, and the goal there might not be to produce all their own food, but rather to reduce their dependence on sourcing from supermarkets and saving money by buying directly from farmers or preserving bulk purchases at home, among many other things. While most homesteaders are motivated to live more independent lives, it's not always based around working the land as a primary source of income. And taking steps towards self-sufficiency is also becoming a popular hobby as more people are learning about the joys and rewards of keeping small farm animals, growing gardens, and canning or fermenting food just for fun or to save a bit of money. The great part about many of these projects is that they have many benefits for your life as well as your community. 
So most of this series, I've spoken to people who are living on many acres of land and have the space for large gardens and big animals, but since so many of us, myself included at the moment, are working with much smaller spaces, I wanted to talk about all of the options still available to people in apartments, condos, or even just urban or suburban homes with tiny yards. There are still tons of ways that you can build a resilient and more independent lifestyle from these small living spaces. You can even turn many of these projects into small businesses if you're willing to dedicate the time to it. Now, from my own experience living in many different settings, I've often thought that homesteading is a state of mind more than anything else. A state of mind that looks critically at the way that we provide for our needs and the industries and practices that we support in doing so. Taking back some control, however small, is a way to increase our options. And I find it's difficult to take any moral stance against modern society when your food, shelter, water, transportation, entertainment, and energy sources all come from sources that are in contradiction to your ethics. By moving towards independence in these areas, you can oppose the practices that you don't agree with much more effectively by simply not depending on them. Regardless of what your political and ideological views are, I don't know of anyone who wants to drink contaminated water. You don't have to be a vegan activist to think that abused and malnourished animals make for lousy meat, milk, or eggs. You don't have to be a tree-hugging hippie to see how massive deforestation has degraded our land and soils. In fact, many of the loudest voices that scream vitriol on television and social media for their causes come from people who are completely dependent on the industries and practices for their way of life. Modern homesteading to me has always been about waking up to the fact that humans have lived healthy, productive, meaningful, and happy lives without these greedy corporations and destructive policies for much longer than we've lived with them, and that moving back to a lifestyle dependent on your home economy and your local community is not only more rewarding, it can also be a lot safer, as so many of us are learning now. So now let's talk about what homesteading can look like in different settings and property situations. While having a lot of land and a big budget is certainly an advantage when it comes to certain aspects of self-sufficiency like food production, I've often found that some of the most inventive and ingenious ideas have come from people living in the smallest spaces and who are working with almost no budget. Like with many design challenges, having creative constraints can push you to come up with solutions that you might not have thought of if you add more money or space to compensate for your mistakes. Now I've compiled a list of some of many of the projects that homesteaders have pioneered to build resiliency in their homes and communities, and I've organized it by projects that apply to whatever living situation you might be in right now. And so because I think it's so relevant to so many people's experience at this moment, if you're in lockdown or social distancing and you're in a small space, let me go over some of my favorite ideas of things that you can do from an apartment or a condominium. So let's start by gardening options. Uh, You can grow sprouts and microgreens in your home. Uh, The sprouts don't need any sunlight. So if you haven't even got a sunny window, you can still grow wonderful, delicious sprouts. I do this at my home all the time. Microgreens are a little bit different. They will need some sun after a while, but putting them in a windowsill works great, which leads to window or balcony herb gardens. And, you know, these are very, very easy to manage. And the microclimate, the little controlled climate inside of your apartment or condo is perfect for growing some of these things, which otherwise are very expensive to buy. You can also do some indoor mushroom growing. This definitely doesn't need any light. In fact, it's better without it. You can do this even in a small closet, uh, underneath your stairs, or any kind of place where you can control the humidity. Different types of mushrooms can be easier or more difficult to grow, but really easy ones to start with are oyster mushrooms. You can also do small aquaponic or hydroponic growing. This is one of those things that like, I could go on for a long time about, but if you look it up online, there are great resources on how to get started. Anybody can save seeds from the veggies that you either grow or buy from the store. Not all of them are viable if they come from like hybrid breeds and it's worth looking up a little bit as to what sort of seeds are easiest to grow from the things that you buy normally, but this is another great option. You can also use worms to turn your food waste into vermicompost. I do this at home as well. 
And for those of you who really want to get outside or are able to get outside, you can apply for a community garden or borrow a neighbor's land. Uh, Again, I'm doing that right now too. There's a neighbor just up the way, maybe about a 10 minute walk from here, who's given us a space in her hazelnut orchard. And I've been growing all kinds of stuff from peas to every type of green that you can imagine. The arugula is coming up like you wouldn't believe. All right, let's talk about what you can do in the kitchen. This is one that I have been doing since my early 20s, and that's baking your own bread. And if you can make a sourdough starter, you don't even need to buy yeast. All you really need is flour and water. You can also get into fermentation for all of its benefits from nutrition to flavor and also the extension of storage. So if you can get like sauerkraut or kimchi or something like that going, any of those lactobacillic ferments are really, really easy to do. And you can store them outside of your fridge if you haven't got that much space in your fridge. You can also learn to forage for wild foods and medicine, and urban and suburban areas have tons of options. Just look up what are the best in your area and make sure that you are able to identify them safely because you don't want to be eating or ingesting anything that you're not sure of what it is. You can also brew wine, beer, and liquor in your home. Careful because there might be some regulations on that, especially when it comes to liquor. You can dry herbs, fruits, veggies, and meats. And there are a lot of small and compact food dehydrators that you can buy that will fit on your countertop in your kitchen. You can also can your harvest, whether it's from your own garden or from a big purchase from a local farmer. It's another great way to extend the shelf life of anything that you buy fresh so that you can eat it all season or later into other seasons later in the year. Now, a lot of people don't think you can do much as far as like raising animals. And the one option that I think could work really well, though I haven't done it myself yet, is raising rabbits. And I've seen a lot of people have success with this in indoor hutches. Now, obviously, they can be pets, but they can also produce great wool and manure, which is great for your garden. And if you're up for this type of thing, they're great meat as well. Now, what about utilities? Well, you might not have control over your building per se, because either you don't own it or it's collectively owned, but you could try putting out a solar oven if you've got a sunny spot that gets uh, enough hours of sun during the day. I've cooked in solar ovens many times and they work really great as long as you've got enough sun exposure. You can also look into pedal powered appliances like sewing machines, washing machines, and pottery wheels, all of which I have used uh, pedal powered versions of or even an alternator for power. And you can buy kits where you can hook up an alternator to like a stationary bike and generate a little bit of power, at least enough to like run a laptop or charge your phone. And you can also rely more on things like candlelight and rechargeable batteries and other ways of kind of extending without having to use up too much power that perhaps you don't have much control over. Now, when it comes to doing things in your household, this kind of stuff applies just as much to an apartment and a condo as it does to Uh, a house out in the country with 50 acres. This is why I love all of the homesteading options is because everything revolving around the house is pretty much repeatable at any scale. You can do all kinds of things like make your own toiletries and personal care products. You can make a little repair or fix it shop for everything from electronics to clothing. You can make your own natural medicines and remedies. Uh, Your own furniture is pretty easy to, to make especially if you're up for like salvaging materials. In fact, a lot of the years that I was traveling around and I was constantly relocating, I was not about to buy new furniture every time I got to a new place. You would be amazed at how many good pieces of furniture that either people throw out, uh, especially if you want to contact a moving company. I've worked for moving companies before and you would not believe like the entire entertainment sets, couches, everything that you would need to furnish a home, people are getting rid of all the time because it's more of a pain to move it than it is to just buy another one for them. Um, you can make your own cleaning supplies uh, and this can be scaled up all the way up to like a home-based business for making crafts or cooked meals or baked goods or anything that the regulations allow for where you live. So there are tons of options for small spaces, even without garden, without land. And I really encourage you to look into them before telling me that you can't start homesteading until you move up to a bigger space. So now let's talk a little bit about taking steps towards self-sufficiency. Many people, including former clients of mine, have put out the lofty goal of being completely self-sufficient. And it's worth examining what that really entails before you commit to it. Is that really what you want? 
I would highly recommend that you first design your ideal lifestyle and then determine the level of self-sufficiency that goes along with it. Complete self-sufficiency is surprisingly not resilient. Consider this anecdote from Natalie Bogwalker. She kind of told me a story from her time living primitively at the Wild Roots community in North Carolina and some of the realities and the things that people don't often think about when it comes to producing all of your own food and how much time it takes to process it. Most all of our vegetable needs were, were met by um, were met by having a small garden and by foraging. And so and by preserving the food that we forage from from season to season so that we have access to it at different times. But, you know, we still, we still, we dumpster dove some and we bought some food. And, and so not all of our food needs were met off the land, but, but the vast majority were, and it was, yeah, it was really, it took a lot of time. Like people, I think often have this idea that, you know, primitive people lived in this idyllic way where they hardly worked or anything like that. And it's just total bullshit. Like we had to, I hope that's okay to say that. No, of course. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it took a lot of time, like all of, all of this foraging and all the food. I mean, the food processing is huge amount of time and, um, and it's really fun and it's really fulfilling, but it's a huge amount of time. And, uh, yeah, so that's something that I think a lot of people don't account for is the amount of time that it takes just to like wash all of these tubers that you have dug up or preserve a bunch of medicine and make tinctures and strain them, you know, or like pick all the leaves off of all of the, all of the nettles because the stems are actually a fiber crop and don't taste like you'd be chewing forever, you know? So, um, yeah, uh, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of time that goes into that. And I was able to take that time at that time in my life. You know, I didn't have any kids and I didn't have any debt, which was amazing. And I didn't have like the land was actually purchased by, um, kind of a philanthropist. So we didn't, we paid for the land taxes, but we didn't have a mortgage. And so all of us were able to put the time that it took into all of that, which was, which was such a blessing. And I, yeah, I really, I really loved it, but I think it's definitely not for everyone. And I think that if you have, you know, debt, if you have kids, if you have financial responsibilities, like it's really hard to do that. And it's especially a silly thing is I think I see a lot of people who, who take out big mortgages to buy some big piece of land and then they have to work all week and they don't get to be there and enjoy it. And that's just such a, such yeah. a tragic, silly thing. I think <laughs> yeah. that happens to a lot of people. Pairing a certain level of self-reliance with a strategy of strengthening community connections to help provide your needs can do a lot to free up your time and resources. There are two ways that I would recommend that people develop resilience in their lives after advising and working with a lot of clients on projects like this. Breaking it down by categories and percentages and developing community-based self-sufficiency. So if you're determined to provide your own needs, start by breaking it down into categories. We all need food, water, shelter, and a livelihood. This could be an income. So this could be a really good place to start. Feel free to add other small categories that might be important to you, like medicine or transportation. Which one of these categories do you feel is the most out of control or needs to be made more resilient? If you live in an arid region, this might be water. If you live out in the wilderness, this might be energy for heating and cooking fuel. It will totally depend on your situation. It's different for all of us. If all of them are outside of your control, you might want to pick one that you think you could most influence or would be most enjoyable to work on. From there, you can make a list of options available to you within your budget, space, and resources, and then decide which project to tackle first. A very important aspect that often gets overlooked when it comes to self-sufficient living is managing your consumption and looking for ways to save on the things that you need in your day-to-day life. I talked to John Moody, the author of The Frugal Homesteader, about what he thinks is an important mindset to cultivate when it comes to trying to save money in your home. 
Yeah, I think you have to view the world through a lens of creativity rather than consumerism. You know, so like most Americans, maybe not most Americans, but but a lot of people, their general approach to a problem is a purchase. Yeah. You know, like if I'm stressed out, I need to purchase a vacation or, or something or a loco mate, latte, moco cap, you know, like whatever. <laughs> um, you know, so so most people um, think they can buy their way to success. And, and you really need to think your way to success. Yeah. And yeah. on occasion, yeah. that will involve buying stuff. You, you know, but like my wife about six months ago, because um, we were having a hard time managing the in, inside portion of our homestead because we got five kids and we have a couple different businesses and we homeschool. Um, she's basically gotten rid of over half of our possessions over the past six months. Wow. And, and we're talking like, we're, we're, we're talking like every category, even furniture. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has really made, you, you know, like less stuff has made us life so much easier and making us so much more successful. <laughs> I also talked with Pam Dawling, the author of The Year-Round Hoop House, about another simple but very important tool for helping to produce your own food. And she told me about how using a hoop house or a greenhouse can make a big difference in extending the growing season. One year, uh, this doesn't usually happen to us in Virginia, but one year we had a whole month when we had either snow on the ground or um, ice on the frozen soil, and we couldn't harvest outdoors. And we kept 100 people in salads and cooking greens for a month in the middle of the winter from that one hoop house just fine. Wow, well, we that did is it. remarkable. Yeah, fairly remarkable. It was looking a bit worked over by the end, but it was very <laughs> worth having, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's your lifeline in those months, huh? Yeah, yeah. And quite a few of those crops, like kale and spinach and lettuce, can all grow whenever it's above 40 Fahrenheit and that happens a lot in the hoop house whereas it doesn't happen so much of the time outdoors even with row covers. When I spoke to one of my heroes in the homesteading world Ben Falk he was actually in his own greenhouse weeding while we spoke together and took the time to tell me about some of the most important sort of bang for your buck enterprises and projects that one can do on a homestead that really uses the time efficiently for the biggest gains and quality of life. Well, I'm in my greenhouse right now, a little hoop house, a new one that I built last year and I'm seeding and well, I'm weeding right now, which is pretty much what vegetable growing is most of the time. <laughs> but, um, you know, so I've got greens coming up, vegetables for sure. I mean, sowing seeds, annual seeds and growing vegetables. And it's funny to say that as the first part of my answer because we're so into perennial crops and I'm talking about the value of annuals, but you know, vegetables are, um, are incredible. And you, you know, you have a, a, a new start at it every single year to have a great vegetable garden. You can grow a ton of food quickly. Um, that's low hanging fruit, salad greens, garlic, potatoes, squash, you know, some of the basics for, for a lot of people are just super easy in our climate. Mm -hmm. No brainer. You can grow, you know, you can pretty much pay yourself 25 bucks an hour to grow squash. I've found, um, you know, with not much time for a lot of food, once you get your system set up. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, I mean, certain trees, certain tree crops, not certainly not all for us, you know, pears, apples, they take a while to bear, but you know, there, there can be very low maintenance in our context and, and quite reliable, especially pears. Opposite that might be like cherries. We grow cherries, but they're, they're not reliable for us. And they're, they take more time. They're more disease prone. Um, you know, creating water storages in the landscape where, where they make sense is uh, very low hanging fruit to have, you know, ponds, essentially um, swales in places, not, not certainly not everywhere. Those can be a very, you know, overdone, I think strategy that everyone wants to do everywhere um, or a lot of people want to do everywhere, but, but certainly they have many, many applicable places for us. They've been very low hanging fruit, not a lot of earthwork to do a lot of value. Um, not in some places, but definitely early on. And in a lot of places, they've been incredibly uh, high return. 
um, greenhouses, you know, sensible greenhouses in our climate go Especially that climate. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, they just go such a long way. Um, wood heat, you know, I think wood heat where you're heating your hot water, you're heating your water and space and can cook on it is, you know, incredibly high return and, and high resiliency um, and very maintainable and robust and resilient. Um, yeah, those are systems we stick with. I mean, then there's a lot of others, you know, related to health, like just eating well and sauna and, you know, um, other, other systems and elements in the systems. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I could, I could name a whole, a whole lot, but th- those are, I think are a handful of, of good ones. I mean, grazing certain animals can be, if you have the time, um, you have the space, us, have yeah. the time and space. Yeah. yeah. Um, one and again, it's like so context dependent. It depends on what you know. What are resources are available? You know, in abundance around you, too. Right. Now, though, all of these represent really good options for building a more resilient life. If none of these projects appeal to you or seem feasible with your lifestyle, there is a second option. Now, the second option is developing community-based self-sufficiency. If you feel either that you're not able or motivated to work on becoming independent on any of the categories that I mentioned before, then perhaps you could try to source more of your needs from as close a source as possible. Rather than trying to become food independent, you could aim to source your food from a local farm or a co-op grocery store that buys from local producers. You might not be able to install your own wind or solar electric system, but you could buy your power from a company that does. Ideally, one that is based as near to you as possible. So get creative and look to see if others in your area have found solutions for the problems you're working on. Another beautiful aspect to community reliance is that you can benefit your local economy in the process. Buying what you need from local producers and vendors means that your money stays near you and enriches the people around you. You can create stronger bonds and include others in your journey towards self-reliance too. As movements like these start to grow, they can even affect change in local government and regulations. Allowing urban backyard chickens in many U.S. cities wasn't a top-down initiative. It came from people banding together and changing regulations in their communities. All throughout history, we humans have succeeded through cooperation and collaboration. Before you think about what you can do on your own, think about how much more you could do if you collaborated. The irony of talking about self-sufficiency is that it's actually much more resilient when coupled with a strong community. While it can be difficult to influence real change as an individual at a state, national, or global scale, many of the steps required to make a positive impact in your community are simple and even fun. Now, the homesteading community seems to be the largest and most established in the U.S., in part since that's where the homesteading concept originated. But I personally have more experience taking on homesteading ventures in countries outside of the U.S., and in fact, I'm in the middle of a transition to a whole new one in northeastern Spain as I'm recording this. Homesteading is tough enough when you're familiar with your surroundings and the invisible structures that govern life and society. But when you're trying to navigate a foreign system, it can be a lot tougher. Add in a foreign language and the learning curve gets much steeper. And this applies just as much to people from outside the U.S. who have moved there. Because I know that many of the systems in place there are not at all welcoming or easy for newcomers. Now in my interview with Zach Barton, who is living on a permaculture farm in Nepal, he told me a lot about the climate, culture, and context that helps inform his design process and has helped him to integrate his life into a new and very foreign place from where he grew up. Okay. Well, I mean, I mean, I think you probably, uh, although you haven't been here, you probably understand a lot of the, the context because we're uh, talking about indigenous people in, um, in the mountain and hillside. So I, I think you have some great experience with that. And I bet you we have a lot of similarities uh, between our experiences for sure. Um, I think there's there's a couple outstanding features of um, Nepal and the people, and I think uh, one of the main things is the, the di- diversity of ethnic groups that live here. Uh, so you have you have an extreme diversity of of ethnic groups and um, different linguistic groups, 
and then a really trippy um, fusion of Hinduism, Buddhism, and shamanism, um, which wow. is really alive and alive and healthy. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, I mean, it's mind blowing. I think that's kind of one of the reasons why Nepal and Shambhala and all this stuff is famous, is because you had this great mixing of cultures and peoples and ethnicities and. And, you know, all able to find a way to live together in synchronicity and peace and stuff like that. So the the, the diversity of, of it all is really beautiful and refreshing and kind of one of the things I really love, um, as well as the diversity of, of, of landscape and ecology, because you have um, almost every single ecological region in the world, except for, let's say, Mediterranean here from from you know down to almost sea level all the way up to 8800 meters you know you have a diversity of plants and um, environments and weather systems and soils and everything so i mean it's it's fantastically beautiful it's the the diversity is what makes it beautiful and the people reflect the people in their culture reflect that right yeah the other really unique yeah sorry if i can say one more thing by all means the really unique thing I think to understand about Nepal specifically, um, this doesn't necessarily apply to India, but about Nepal is Nepal was never colonized. Mm. Right? So you, I mean, there was countries that tried, the Chinese tried, the Tibetans tried, the Indian, and I mean the, the British tried when they, after they took India, they came from Nepal, of course. Um, but they were never successful in occupying this country. So Nepal is really unique in the fact that it has been um, 100% responsible for guiding its own development. Okay. And and it's unique, right? It's one of the only uh, indigenous countries. I mean, one of the only indigenous groups which can say that. And I mean, I think that really speaks for how open and how, um, loving and inclusive and stuff they are because they've never been taught to be the other they've never thought of themselves as the other right yeah yeah or subordinate to another culture occupying them yeah or that or they're, they're less than another country or less than another culture they need to be respectful of local culture and traditions building community adapting to a new way of life and even to a new view of the world is very important If you're still considering moving to a new country to start your homesteading dreams, there's a list of things that you might want to consider and plan for when homesteading in a foreign country. What are your main motivations to leave your home country? Make sure first that the issues aren't the same or worse in the country you're thinking of going to. What about the new country attracts you? Can you confirm that that's what life is really like? Or is it mostly romanticism and dreams from filtered Instagram pictures and a love of the local food? Because those are different things. Will the culture in the new place allow and support a homesteading lifestyle choice? Do local regulations and codes allow for the things that you want to do with your land? And this is kind of related to the other one. If you're planning on doing some kind of major farming enterprise and though the land is sufficient, the local coding bodies and, and restrictions aren't going to let you do it, yeah, it might not be a good decision. You might always be butting heads. How will you make money and account for your expenses in the new place? This is really important to look into. If you're thinking of selling farm goods and homemade products, make sure that first you're allowed to and second that there's a market for those things before counting on it as a potential income. Now, I get a lot of questions from people asking how they can start to earn an income on their homestead, whatever that might look like. And this makes good sense because I did just get finished talking about how it's actually not very resilient to be entirely self-sufficient. And especially in the startup phase of a homestead, you're probably going to need to bring in a lot of things from off-site and not all of them are you going to be able to find for free or to salvage. And so you're going to need some kind of an income, especially if you've either taken on some debt or like a mortgage to buy the place that you've moved up to. Uh, You're going to need to keep that cash flowing. And luckily, there's tons of options of ways to make money on a homestead. And they're about as diverse as any other type of business enterprise. Now, as we get into this, 
I do want to say that I am not a business expert and I don't intend to act like one here. I won't be giving business templates or specific advice for two main reasons. First, there's way too many variables between business regulations, certification bodies, and tax laws that your context might be completely different from mine. Second, there are undoubtedly many reliable and experienced voices on successful business building that are specific to your place and all of those variables available to you online or in your community. So here I'll just be presenting ideas that I've either tried or I've seen work for other homesteaders across different contexts. I'll also give you a list of useful information to gather before investing time and money into your business to help you manage the risk as much as possible. Now, I certainly believe that any ethical and legal business venture involves at least some risk, and I've certainly failed plenty of times as an entrepreneur, and I intend to fail a good deal more, obviously not because I enjoy failure per se, but because I also believe that if you've never failed, it means you've never really challenged yourself sufficiently. The good news is that business planning is not really different for a homestead enterprise than it is for any other venture, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. You just need to do a lot of research organization, and planning to make good decisions, to manage risk, and to have a reasonable chance at success. So some of the main essential information that I advise on gathering would first be to decide what sector your business is in. Small differences in your sector can come with completely different rules and regulations. For example, raw or cooked food, wholesale or direct-to-consumer. Those are both examples of similar sectors that often get regulated very differently in many places. From there, looking into local regulations. So after defining that sector, you'll know which rules and regulations are going to apply to you much better. And you'll want to get more informed on what rules and regulations govern how you can do business where you're located. Uh, In my case, the business regulations are extremely different here in Spain than they were in Guatemala as they were from the Philippines or any of the other places that I've lived. And so it's really worth taking the time to get to know what the constraints are where you live. From there, you want to do sufficient market research. Now, until you know who you're selling to, what they're willing to pay for a product or service, and their preferred way of buying something, you're going to struggle to develop a strategy of how to reach them. Now, once you have all of this information, then you can start getting a better idea of your financial situation. If you don't have experience analyzing things like operational costs, startup costs, gross and net profit, or financial projections, I would highly recommend either taking a good course or getting professional help. This is really key to determining whether you have a sound business idea or just a creative and laborious way to lose all of your savings because That's very quickly what a business can turn into if you don't have a good plan. So yes, this is a short list, and I know that there is a lot more that goes into making a complete business plan, but if you get at least all of these categories sorted and well-researched, you'll be a lot better off than many people who start micro-businesses, and you'll be better informed as to what other information and steps you'll need to take to be well-prepared. Perhaps the single best thing that you can do to get a clear picture of what running your business will look like is to find somebody who is succeeding in a similar venture with a similar context to yours and ask them directly. You can shortcut so much of the guesswork by going straight to an experienced source. Now, if you're not yet thinking about monetizing the things that you produce on your homestead, I'll give you this example when I spoke to Deborah earlier in the series about how their ambitions to start producing all of their own needs quickly expanded into realizing that they were producing a huge surplus and it became one of the reasons why they started to sell a lot of the products that they offer on their homestead. Well, we have 32 acres, but we honestly, we could do what we wanted to do on 10 acres. We overbought because we thought we needed this much. Um, And our Property has a creek that runs through it, which essentially made two-thirds of it very difficult to use. And so we learned fairly quickly, like, oh, yeah, we really don't need all those other acres. Hmm. Um, And it's not, you know, it sounds challenging, but like that, because our original goal was just to grow things for ourselves. But the reason we wound up selling things is because we wound up producing more than we needed. Like if you have a pig 
she's going to have, depending on what breed, she's going to have somewhere between, you know, five and 10 babies. And most families are not going to eat that much pork in a year. So you wind up like, oh, okay, I need to find some people who want to buy pork from us. And um, with the sheep, we realized also that, you know, well, if we if we're gonna breed them, we really don't need that many sheep. Like we started with two ewes, two pregnant ewes, and within only three or four years, we had twenty sheep mm. because we wanted our own wool, and that which is really fun. It's a whole another level. Um, but yeah, we're like, oh my gosh, we have twenty sheep. We don't need this much wool, <laughs> so we need to start selling it. And so that's kind of it. The whole thing, honestly, it was was a lot easier than we were expecting it to be. And so that was how we wound up selling stuff was because we wound up with so much more than what we needed. So about two weeks ago, I sent out an email asking listeners to tell me what topics about self-sufficient living they were most interested in and wanted to know more about. And so I'm going to take the opportunity here to answer just a few of those responses that I think are a good reflection of some of the most common responses that I received. So the first one is from Helena Callow from the UK, who asked, What do you do if you don't have a garden? Could you do a general chat about how the indoor life has affected people? How can you still feel connected to nature? And I think this is great because I know a lot of people are in lockdown, myself included right now, especially here in Europe, though it looks different and the regulations are different around the world. If you're staying put, sort of sheltering in place or in your house, it's going to start to take a toll pretty fast. And now personally, to kind of maintain my interactions with nature and to get fresh food, especially, I've been doing a lot of sprouts and microgreens in, in the house and caring for plants and animals in the home. And if you have access to that at all, I highly recommend it. I've also been sprouting a lot of plants in order to transplant into a garden when I get more time or when the season's correct. And I'm fortunate that I've been able to get out to a neighbor's garden near me here a couple of times a week to take care of it. But there's also, like, you've got to take these moments, the little moments. In my case, like, the apartment that I'm in doesn't get a whole lot of sun, but a couple of hours a day, the sun comes streaming through the windows or out on the terrace, and I always make time to go and sit out there for as long as I can and get all the sun that I'm able to, seeing as it's kind of a short window to do so. I mean, I really believe that staying home is an act of solidarity for the health of your community and you should take it really seriously, but you should also take time to find any opportunity that you can to get some extra sun and to interact with nature as you can. The next question comes from Dave in the UK who writes, I'm fortunate to have sufficient space in my two acre plot to experiment with some permi concepts and food medicinal plant growing, but the transition to a genuinely regenerative lifestyle is some time away yet. So all kinds of content that relate to practical things that can be done by people who perhaps have some space like an allotment or vegetable garden, etc., but are still tied to a corporate type job would be interesting. Yeah, this is again a very common one that I hear. Thank you, Dave. Um, breaking away from kind of these ties, these things that still hold you back and into a society that you'd prefer to move away from are, I mean, I think everybody's working towards that. I'm still on a journey towards it. But a lot of the content that I put out in this episode and in the ebook on ways to build small enterprises and build upon them for homestead related activities. So if you have a piece of land that's large enough to create some kind of produce, whether that's, you know, vegetables and crops or animal products or herbs and medicines. There's so many different things that you can make. And the key to that is that, like, unless you're a larger operation creating things at, like, wholesale levels, it's going to be hard to make a living just on raw products. And so you don't actually have to make that much if you can find a good way of turning it into sort of a value-added commodity. And this is going to look different, completely dependent on what it is you're able to produce. But by adding value to that product, you're going to be able to get a higher price from it. 
And then there's also a lot of other things that you can do to expand on an enterprise, no matter how small it is. So if you're good at adding value to, let's say, uh, a veggie box, you can turn it into like a gift basket, or you could offer a service on top of that of either delivering it or teaching people how to grow their own or putting out, you know, webinars or online courses. There's so many different ways of sort of adding income to something that you're already doing. So think about what resources you have access to, any expertise, any particular services that you can do really well, and see how many of those things you can kind of center around your home or your homestead and sort of use it as a transition to get away from whatever income or corporate job you might be tied to. And, you know, it's a process. I'm still in it myself. I'm not entirely removed from it. And uh, in this process, it's going to take time. So I wouldn't say, you know, quit your day job and just throw yourself into this, especially in the the case that like the economy is not great at all right now. And that income might be pretty important for your personal savings. But you can take small steps towards greater independence in your income by sort of assessing what it is that you have to work with right now. So the next series of questions comes from Sarah Fard. And I've been in touch a couple of times with Sarah in the past, and she's been a really good source of links and new learning for me. So I thank you, Sarah. And though I don't have time to get to all the questions you asked, which are pretty numerous, I do want to focus on one that I think is very relevant for right now, which is how do we navigate through the heap pile of info and noise and get focused? And I I would imagine you're referring to kind of all of the different information and conflicting viewpoints and different assessments that are coming from this pandemic and both on the political sides and the economic sides mostly. But in my case, like I've definitely been feeling this too, sort of an overwhelm of information and not knowing which source to trust or, you know, with so much of it being extremely negative right now, it can really affect your day-to-day mood and your mental well-being. And so I have, for the most part, decided to turn it off. There's a couple of sources that I personally trust, but they might not be the same for you. Um, So I'm not going to make any direct recommendations. But one thing that I did do early in this process when it started to feel overwhelming, kind of what was going on outside is, yeah, really just turning a lot of it off and taking the time to look inward and figure out like, where are your fears and anxieties coming from? Where are sort of the insecurities stemming from? And if you can identify those, you can probably identify the information that would be useful in this time. So if you're feeling insecure about, you know, either where your paycheck's coming from or where your food is going to come from in the future, maybe just focus on those topics for a while. And rather than listening to all of the different statistics about, you know, how many contagions and how many deaths are coming from around the world due to the COVID crisis, you could look into okay, how can I take steps to be more resilient for producing my own food, which is a really common one right now? Or what are some ways that I can start to produce an income? But honestly, all of that, in my opinion, is is somewhat self-serving. And what we need more right now, especially if you're in a relatively comfortable position, obviously, if you're in a state of emergency, you need to take care of yourself first. But if you're mostly just kind of bored or feeling cooped up in your house and wondering what to do, I know for myself, I have felt a lot better looking into options about what I can do for others in my community around me and what are some ways that either I can start to learn some skills or prepare myself to be of service to this community that's going to be needing to recover and a lot of people who are going to be in much less fortunate positions coming out of this than I am. And, you know, that's going to look different for everybody and your capacities to help Your skills, your resources are going to all be different, but I'm sure if you think about it and are creative about it, you can find some really good options that are specific to your strengths and don't put you in a state of vulnerability or put undue risk on yourself or your family in the process. So taking a look at how you can be of service to your community is something that I have really found has improved my mental well-being and my thought patterns in this time. And I hope some of this idea or or advice is helpful to you out there as well. So the last question that I'm going to address today comes from Thomas Bakker from the Netherlands. And this is a very loaded question, but I'm just going to try and get to the, the core of it. He asks, I would like to learn more about preventing harmful insects, weeds, fungi, and bacteria. And I'm also interested in large scale potato production with a permaculture approach. 
A lot of times I struggle to see how we can feed the world population without using pesticides and fertilizer. All right, well, maybe that's not a question, but I think I know what he's getting at. And, you know, I'm not going to speak specifically to weeds, fungi, bacteria, or large-scale potato production because, you know, I don't have all of the information to make an educated recommendation on this, though I know a little bit about the agricultural situation in the Netherlands. Uh, let's get to struggling to see how we can feed, feed the world population without using pesticides and fertilizers. Well, first of all, that statement kind of presumes that we're doing a good job of it already. Um, the, the truth is that most agriculture is actually not industrial agriculture or using chemical fertilizers. In fact, it's only really only makes up about 30% of large-scale industrial agriculture that uses a lot of these chemicals. Um, still a vast majority of the agricultural around the world that feeds most people is small-scale agriculture that doesn't rely nearly as much on pesticides and fertilizers. And I mean, even those things are a very recent phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Two things are likely to happen. I think either we're going to destroy the ecological base and the topsoil and everything else that comes with that, which is absolutely essential to producing the crops that feed the world as it is, which is going to result in a devastating and drastic decline in world population, or it's simply not going to be able to keep up with population growth. And that is also either going to halt it or cause it to decrease dramatically. And I think unless we can start to transition the portion of agriculture that is reliant on fertilizers and pesticides, we or to a model that does more to reestablish the essential services of our ecosystems and the health that is needed to actually grow things. The fact is that like we're working from a very, very degraded landscape as it is like so much of what it is that we rely on for our diets and to supply the world population is already coming from a deficit uh, and our agricultural practices, even the small scale ones, are still kind of extracting nutrients and health from the ground without putting it back. And if we can transition as soon as possible, ideally <laughs> before now already, to a model that puts back the health and the nutrition and the connections and, you know, sort of honors the, the right for all life to thrive on this planet, we're not even going to scratch the surface at the potential of how much we can produce because it's just taking away from a base that's going to continually degrade. So uh, I'm actually going to be transitioning into a whole nother series on regenerative agriculture starting next Friday. And I'll be talking with a lot of experts, starting with Joel Salatin, uh, exactly all about these topics. So rather than taking it from me, I've not worked in large scale agriculture since I was about 19. Um, I'm going to leave it to the experts and refer you to that series, which starts next Friday. So with all of that said, I'm going to leave that topic on this note, which is an excerpt from the interview that I did earlier in this series with Ayana Young, where we talk about some of the relationship between humans and our ecosystems and how we should better interact with them. We can't keep asking the earth to conform to every one of our desires or or wants or even needs like the earth is not here to serve us all the time <laughs> you know we take advantage of the earth so much and just expect the earth to do everything we want rather than trying to ask how can we serve the earth how mm -hmm. can we um show up for these living systems and fulfill their needs and desires rather than vice versa. Because if we fulfill the earth's needs, we are going to be fed. We're going to be met. We're going to be most of the time taken care of if we can actually listen to what the earth is needing in order to be abundant. But we don't do that anymore. And so it's just very, we've gotten into a very selfish cycle with our human uh, desires. And in a way, I understand it. We're animals and we want to survive. And it makes sense that we think about ourselves and our needs and our wants. But I do think that as intelligent beings, we need to really consider what we're asking of the earth 
and how that is going to not only affect the earth, but eventually affect us, which is definitely what we're seeing now. All right, as we wrap up now, hopefully this special episode and all the interviews leading up to it have given you a pretty complete and detailed look into modern homesteading and the huge variety of possibilities that the movement represents. If there's anything important that I forgot to mention or you feel that I misrepresented, feel free to let me know in the comments. I learned so much from the feedback that I get from you listeners, so don't be shy. As I said before, homesteading has always been more of a mindset to me, and one of the things that gives me hope during this time of global pandemic and all the fear and anxiety that comes with it is that I've been seeing so much creativity and resilience coming from people from every walk of life. There's a huge surge in interest in topics like this and how to provide for oneself and community as we kind of collectively wake up to the knowledge that we never had to give up these skills and this ability in the first place. I'm really touched by the abundance of small acts between neighbors to support one another and the heroic efforts to support those who are most vulnerable at this time. I applaud all of you who have stepped up to help in whatever ways that you found, and I encourage you to continue, even as this epidemic draws out, to continue to do whatever you can to support the people around you. Even if you think no one sees your efforts or that no one notices the good in your small actions, I believe that these things make all the difference. So before we wrap up this session, I just once more want to remind you that I've just put out the ebook to accompany this special episode as a resource to help you take action towards a more resilient life and community. Don't forget to join me next week as I start off a new series on regenerative agriculture and how it's evolving in this increasingly unknown landscape of uh, economic development and, and so many new things that are happening. I've got a fantastic interview talking to Joel Salatin from his perspective on how things are turning out with, uh, with the current events of this epidemic, what it means to our political structure. It's a fantastic talk that I really recommend. So I'll catch you on next week's episode. And until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and look after yourselves.